0: journey through the faith with you come on let's roll before your coffee gets cold it's time for the jp2 morning crew good morning this is the jp2 morning crew show and my name is eddie madueño today i'm co-hosting and chatting with steve Sponskowski and our special co-host father anthony Soroki. Of Our Lady monk Carmel Church in Rancho Penasquitos, gentlemen, how are you? Steve, how are you doing today?
1: Eddie, I'm doing great. You know, I was talking about that coffee, You're trying to keep my coffee nice and warm this morning. So I had to do a little warmer up early, but uh, uh, coffee keeps me going, so I'm I'm good to go.
0: Perfect, perfect. And Father,
2: as I like to say, I am doing better than I deserve because God is so
0: good. Uh, uh, he's He's better to me than I deserve, so I'm doing well. Thanks. Outstanding, yeah. I went to a, a men's retreat uh in October, and, and one of the fathers there uh kept talking about how we're blessed by the best. So, amen. Uh, yeah, I agree with that, I really like that saying. So, okay, everyone. So, Father Soroki is back in the studio this morning again, as both guest and co host. We'll talk to us in a minute about his guest, but first, a little bit about uh Father Soroki. Um, but first, be sure to stay tuned after this show for the Life is Worth Living with Archbishop Fulton Sheen show. Um, so before we I... begin, Father, can you please lead us in a short prayer? Sure. Heavenly Father, uh, we praise and thank you for your many
2: gifts. And you've blessed us um, as a Christian family over the centuries with, uh, with many wise teachers of the faith. And you've given us the gift of reason to understand uh, your truth and help us um, as we hear this upcoming interview to uh, to appreciate that even more in Jesus name we pray amen
1: amen amen thank you father soroki so so tell us a little father about uh, there's a new center you're building there some uh, construction work you're doing yeah so, so
2: we call it our uh, discipleship center we're we're going to break ground um just in uh, the next few days or so and uh it's going to be um a a 10 room thirteen thousand square foot 10 room uh center for our catechesis uh, faith formation some of our our prayer groups and other groups and uh so our our parish has really been i would say uh, increasing in in the level of engagement of parishioners um and uh and so we've been uh, needing more more space and uh, so we're we're looking forward to that and the, the, the parishioners have been very generous and so um, so that should be done in about 10 months.
1: And I assume this has kind of been a process of planning on how to do this. How's that, uh, how's that uh, process uh, taken shape?
2: Well, um, it's, it's an interesting process. We have, we work with great architects, Domus Studio. Um, so they, we finished a church, a brand new, beautiful church was dedicated in 2013. And then there were plans eventually for the whole campus. And so this is our phase two. Uh, and I would say, uh, the biggest frustration has been, uh, Um, you know, it's just the, the city of San Diego and how long it takes to get the permits. So, uh, that, that's, that was a lot longer than we expected, but, uh, but all in God's time.
1: Well, and as you know, every time there's a frustration, there's a grace that comes with that. So what, what was, what's been the greatest grace uh, so far of this process? Would you say?
2: Um, I really, I've liked working with the, the, with the contractor and the, um, and with the, uh, um, architects, but I I would say too, just like, we came up with a really good theme, which, which I've continued to meditate on built on rock. And it's uh, based on a parable that Jesus told about how, um, you know, how if we, if we really listen to what he says and put it into practice, we're a wise person who builds our house on rock. And if we ignore what he says, we we're a person who builds a house on sand. And, um, and that's kind of concluding his sermon on the Mount. And so, um, I've continued, continued to reflect on that, and it just happens to be that our, our property has a, a really pretty, uh, pretty dense rock as its foundation.
0: So, Father, uh, I understand okay. that prior to your calling, before your calling to the priesthood, uh, you were a, a lawyer? Yes, so I practiced uh, law for two years. I, uh, I worked for
2: a f- firm called Shepherd Mullen in the business litigation section.
0: I'll and where did you receive your your uh, juris doctorate? I um, studied a lot. At UC Berkeley. Our our uh, parish priest here, uh, Father Mark Edney, uh, uh, attended Berkeley also. So, um,
2: yeah, I know Berkeley has re- reputation for being very leftist, but there's uh, yeah. some. It's like uh, when they asked uh, when when I think it was Nathan said, you know, uh, he's you know asked you know, can anything good come from Nazareth? Well. Uh, can anything good come from Berkeley? Yes, good things can come from Berkeley. Exactly. So.
1: <laughs> exactly, I agree. Do you, so. do you see a similarity or a difference, a huge difference between being a priest and a lawyer? Are there some overlap? How does that...
2: So uh, I would say that um, the the biggest overlap is just the 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 a need for clear communication and clear thinking. And I think that that um, is something you train in law school and something that, you know, comes out, I think comes through in my homilies and my in my teaching. Um, there's some, I guess, more specific skill sets As a pastor, you know, you're also, in a sense, the the CEO of a, a, you know, a a small business. And so you have to read contracts and and think about things like liability. So I guess it's good to have that background.
0: Father, uh, occasionally here on the uh, JP2 Morning Cruise show, we like to play our Catholic Challenge, which is meant to test our our guests. So uh, I'll ask you if you're up to the challenge. Yeah, let's go. Let's go ahead. So, uh, the question is, which Roman governor is mentioned at most Sunday Masses? Oh, Pontius Pilate. Yeah, and that green. was too easy, wasn't it? Yeah. It was too easy. <laughs> um, so, uh, y- you know, a lot of my experience, well, really my only real experience with Pontius Pilate is obviously hearing about him at Mass and then uh, from the movie, The uh, the Passion of the Christ, mm-hmm. uh, it's really interesting to see uh, how he struggles with with uh, what he wants to do versus what he thinks he has to do. And I'm struck by his wife who who knew what he should do, mm-hmm. uh, seemed to be very disappointed in him. Is there any more uh, that, that you can share about Pontius Pilate and the struggles he went through?
2: Well, I think... Uh- the question he asked, which is recorded in the Gospel of John, is a is a question really of a of the modern age, which is what is truth. So, Pilate is he's you know he's he's an early relativist. Um, he you know he doesn't really you know when Jesus you know answers him he doesn't really believe that there's this objective truth. It's just about you know get, you know getting ahead in life or, or or maybe even he was acting out of out of fear of being punished or demoted if he didn't handle the you know the uh, the uh, unsettledness that was. You know, caused by Jesus. So, uh, but yeah, that, that question: What is truth? And um, and we know ultimately, right? The answer to that is uh, truth is a person. It is it is Jesus Christ. Amen.
0: Amen. So, all right, Father. Thank you. That was uh, uh, you, you did great on on that quiz. Uh, now, uh, if you'll please tell us a little bit about your guest, uh, David Bates. I believe he started a website mm-hmm. or podcast uh, r- uh, reference uh, C.S. Lewis.
2: Yeah, so I, I David uh, used to be involved in uh, young adult activities in San Diego, and I got to know him a little bit all uh, oh, fifteen years ago, maybe. And um, and I and he and I knew he moved out of the area, um, and I didn't know what he was up to. Many years since since I had uh, heard even about him. And then I'm I'm on you know on YouTube, and I'm, I get suggested this uh, C.S. Lewis podcast uh, with David Bates. I'm like, yeah, hey, I know that guy. Um, and then I started to to listen to it, and I went to their website. So um, uh, basically, it's a um, it's dedicated to the to the the writings of the great Christian apologist uh, C.S.
0: Lewis. Great! That, that sounds like this would be an interesting program. So uh, let's just uh, jump into it. Here's Father uh, Soroki and uh, David Bates.
2: This is Father Anthony Siroki on JP Catholic Radio. And I'm having a conversation with David Bates, who is a host of a podcast called Pints with Jack. And good morning, David. How are you?
3: I'm very well. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you.
2: So uh, tell me, what is Pints with Jack?
3: Pints with Jack is the name of a podcast we started about six years ago. Uh, it began life as just a book club in San Diego when both myself and my co-host actually lived there. And then we decided to start a podcast, um, which was basically the podcast version of that book club, which was a C.S. Lewis book club. C.S. Lewis is the Jack in Pints with Jack because that was his nickname. And uh, we have Pints because C.S. Lewis was known to frequent a pub in Oxford called The Eagle and Child, where he met up with his friends J.R.R. R. Tolkien, Charles Williams, Owen Barfield, uh, the group known as the Inklings. So we we're really trying to replicate that uh, in podcast form by getting together each week and talking through a chapter or two of one of Lewis's works.
2: So I, I want to talk to you um, to just really talk more about C.S. Lewis, especially to for those who uh, might not be that familiar with him. Those are our listeners who maybe have never read anything written by him. And uh, so his nickname was Jack, but well, so what does the C.S. stand for?
3: Oh, Clive Staples. I can see why he took a nickname then. Well, yes. (laughs) The opening line to The Voyage of the Dawn Treader is, there once was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scubb, and he almost deserved it. I think that's kind of autobiographical. There once was a boy named Clive Staples Lewis, and he almost deserved it.
2: (laughs) Good. Now, um, I want to just get a little bit into his his life story. So uh, when did he he live? Uh, And um, let's start with that.
3: Well, he was born in 1898. A lot of people think he was English. He wasn't actually. He was born in Belfast in Northern Ireland. Uh, but the majority of, educa- of his education was in England, and he spent the rest of his life there, which is why a lot of people think yeah. that he was English.
2: And um, he was born then into the, uh, into, uh, the, the Protestant, uh, Protestant nominally at least, family in, mm-hmm. in, in in Northern Ireland. Okay. Yes, yeah, uh, so it was Church, called of, Church Ireland. of Ireland. Okay. Yeah, and um, so he did. He was. He went to boarding school. Now he had a trauma early in his life that affected him. What was that?
3: Yes, his mother died when he was about nine years old, uh, and this was of an era when they did the operations in the house, and so um, it was all quite traumatic for him. And he writes very movingly about it in his spiritual autobiography, Surprised by Joy. And when his mother died, he he wrote that all settled happiness, all that was tranquil and reliable, disappeared from my life. And as you say, it was shortly after that, that he was then sent to boarding school in England, which he absolutely hated.
2: He hated being in boarding school. And during that time, he also stopped believing in God.
3: Mm -hmm. Yes, he became a pretty committed atheist fairly early on. Uh, It was for a number of reasons. One, he was told that Christianity was true, but everything else was completely wrong and he just didn't think that made sense particularly considering how much he enjoyed all of the uh, greek and roman myths that he read it was like how can all this be absolutely false and christianity perfectly right um the trauma of his mother's death almost certainly played played a part in it as well um and also he he tried to believe and he was he, he basically had a, a kind of a prayer regimen that basically sucked the life out of him uh, so that if he didn't feel he was really properly praying, he had to keep doing it and doing it and doing it. until
2: A little what... bit kind of obsessive compulsive or, or scrupulous about that.
3: Yes, yes. Yeah. And and that pretty much squeezed the last bits of faith out of him. And then it was just very, very much in in the air, in the water of the time, a very popular sort of atheism. Um, and yeah, a lot of our decides... listeners
2: might not realize that even in the early 20th century in academic circles, certainly in Europe, that uh, atheism was quite common. So let's so let's fast forward a bit, well, just briefly. What was his? Um, what did he get his doctorate in? And and what was he teaching? Because he he was later became a professor.
3: Mm-hmm. So Oxford is a bit special in terms of the way it works. Um, he took uh, greats and mods, which pretty much meant that he covered ancient history and languages and philosophy, mm. uh, and he was trying to get a job. Uh, with those, and he knew that he would stand more chance if he went back and studied some more. And so he also uh, studied English literature at Oxford and got it in record time. And after a brief period of time tutoring as uh, as a as a philosophy teacher, um, he then settled into teaching English literature. And then later in his life, he was actually awarded a custom-made chair, a custom position at Cambridge University in medieval and Renaissance literature.
2: So he's well respected as an academic. Mm -hmm. Uh, Tell me briefly about how he came to believe in God and then to believe in Christ.
3: Mm. So it was a two stage process for Lewis. Uh, First of all, he came to believe in God. I would say this seems to mostly been out of uh, logic and reasoning and philosophy, as he basically tried to make sense of the world. And he found that his naturalism and his atheism didn't have very much explanatory power and there were lots of things about reality that just didn't make sense under under that uh, mode of thinking particularly even just uh, the the idea of reason if my brain is nothing but bouncing around pieces bouncing around atoms why on earth should i trust my brain to to reflect reality yeah to give mm-hmm. me truth okay so he became a theist, and he he writes about that. it's It's kind of funny because most people, when they discover God, they're filled with joy and elation. But Lewis wrote, "You must feel me. Uh, you must picture me in my room alone, night after night, feeling the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. I eventually gave in and admitted that God was God, knelt and prayed, perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England.
2: <laughs> it's amazing that you can say that from memory, and it's uh, very, um, uh, very amazing. It just it showcases his writing, his turns of phrases, and things like that. Um, okay, and then how did he come to believe that Jesus was the Son of God?
3: So there had been a, a few pieces that had fell uh, uh, fell into place along the way. Uh, one of his atheist friends was actually commenting how good the evidence of the New Testament actually was. And he described him as the most hard-boiled atheist he knew. And it's like, well, if we're going to concede that. Um, but one of the real sticking points for Lewis related to uh, the nature of myth and uh, the relationship of Christianity to other religions and you know the Greek and Roman myths. And Lewis regarded myths as beautiful lies but breathe through silver. So they're ultimately false, but they just were very pretty lies. And there was a long late night talk that Lewis had with Tolkien and another one of the Inklings, uh, where they really got into this subject of myth. And Tolkien helped Lewis see that Christianity is a myth like any other myth, insofar as, and I'm using it here in a, in a technical sense, that it is communicating a worldview. And he says that the big difference between Christianity Christianity and the other myths, is that the the Christian myth actually became fact. And Lewis later wrote an essay called Myth Became Fact, that all of the longings, all of the inclinations, Mm -hmm. all of the hints that you find among the pagan cultures and other religions find the fulfillment and culmination in Christianity. And this is actually something that you find in the Church Fathers, the idea that while God was preparing the Israelites, with the revelation from the prophets, God was also preparing the pagan world where Christianity was spread like wildfire to the works of the philosophers and the poets the and stories. the poets
2: and the myths as well. So the seed, mm-hmm. the seeds of the word, they would say, God had planted these and you are maybe some modern people would call kind of a collective unconscious in which these basic, um, archetypes and themes have been and present intuitions. in all these stories, but actually Lewis came to, to be convinced that uh, the difference with Christianity was the myth became fact that there, there was an historical reality to, um, to to who Jesus was and his death and resurrection.
3: Okay, like so was I want to. Under Pontius Pilate.
2: Yeah, yeah, ex- exactly. It wasn't like in a land far, far away. You know, a long time Once ago. time. On a time. Mm-hmm. It was under Pontius Pilate in in uh, Jerusalem. So. All right. I would like you, first of all, to uh, if you had to recommend uh, a book for someone who's never read Lewis, what's what's one or two that you'd recommend?
3: Here's the general principle I would give. Lewis wrote in basically every literary genre available. He wrote fairy tale. He wrote apologetics. He wrote fantasy. He wrote satire. He wrote literary criticism. Whatever is your favorite kind of genre, he's written something in that. So go with that. But if I had to just pick a few, I would say... Uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. If you haven't read it, or if you haven't read it since you were a child, reread it. This was mm-hmm. how I came back to Lewis as an adult. Oh. And those books are incredibly rich, and I was absolutely blind to so much stuff in them when I was a child. When you were a
2: child, and then later you saw that he was making all these allusions. That
3: yeah, mm-hmm.
2: yeah and of course uh, the main uh, one of the main characters, Aslan, is Christ basically. Uh, mm-hmm. If Christ were incarnate in a you know an imaginary world with talking animals, so. Yeah, and and uh, I know P- I know that they I made mean, movies about it. So a lot of times people are watching movies instead of readings. But I, I would agree with you, David, that we they really should sit down and read the books. And even as adults, so I, I read them myself also once as a once as a child and later as as an adult. And I, I experienced the same thing you did. So Chronicles of Narnia, they're pretty quick quick reads too.
3: Yeah very Um, high when i reread them i knocked them all out in about a week it's
2: not like tolstoy you know and then (laughs) Tolstoy, you can't even you you lose track of which character is which and all this stuff so Mm -hmm. great uh if you Uh, wanted let's say a a nonfiction book in in more of his philosophical or apologetic uh, uh writings what would you recommend
3: i would recommend mere christianity it is probably the best short presentation of christianity in the 20th century and they began life as radio addresses. Lewis was addressing the British public during World War II, as bombs were falling on England. Uh, he was invited to basically present the Christian faith to the, the to the British public, and it's also fairly short, and it's specifically built for somebody who has little to no exposure to Christianity, or even if you. If you even if you're born and raised Christian if you're born and raised Catholic you will find some real depth in those books both as to how Lewis um, the truth that he communicates and also how he communicates because Lewis's big strength is he always presents with uh, a theological idea a picture to understand what he the tr- the eternal truth he's trying to communicate
2: now just I think we should address the fact that uh, Lewis um came back to, when he when he reverted or, or converted he, he continued to practice his faith as, uh, as an the Church of England or Church of Ireland, Church of England mm-hmm. and he never even though you know as one of his best friends Tolkien was Catholic he never became Catholic himself. Um, some some Catholics might be a little um, reluctant to to, to, uh, to read non-catholics or put too much uh, credence in, in what they say what would you say to that?
3: I would say the the list of Catholics who love Lewis is long and uh uh, quite famous and I've known so many people who have ultimately come to the Catholic faith and they credit Lewis with a sizable part of that conversion process so for no other reason it's good to be familiar with this guy so you can hand him hand his books to your Protestant friends and you never know they might actually end up converting yeah and I you know
2: in reading him I, I, I it's again I haven't read him as much as you have but I never found anything in there that made me you know say wow this is really against the catholic faith so uh and um great now we were talking a little bit before we started recording about um kind of some of the issues that are the biggest obstacles to people believing in in god or in christ now and i wanted to um, just talk with some of them about uh, with you about some of them and see if uh, lewis Um, might have some uh, insight. So one of the things is, um, is the the philosophers sometimes call it the problem of divine hiddenness, the idea that if God Mm -hmm. exists, why doesn't he make his existence more obvious? Does Mm -hmm. Lewis address that?
3: He does in a number of places, sometimes directly, but the the book I'd recommend to anyone that is thinking about this question is the book which Lewis actually regarded as his best book he's described it as far and away my best book and it's called till we have faces and it it's a book about it's set in pagan culture and it really is addressing this question about uh, why why do divine places have to be dark places basically why why can't we always see things brilliantly clear why do the gods just not speak to us directly
2: why why, why couldn't jesus always be in this transfigured state
3: right? <laughs> exactly something like that yeah <laughs> And why why did he have to ascend? We love the resurrection, but yeah, the ascension why does he have to live? <laughs> exactly, okay.
2: and so and so this is uh, until we have faces. Is a, mm-hmm. it's a, it's set in pagan times, and is there a there's a particular character that's struggling with this question?
3: Yes, we we see the entire story through the eyes of uh, an ugly woman named Orwell. and. Uh, she she struggles with the gods. She is formed in Greek philosophy by their their tutor, and the tutor is very dismissive of spirituality in general. And she also has a beautiful sister named Psyche um, who loves the gods and loves the God of the mountain. And there's real layers in this story. Um, I would recommend people listen to our series. On till we have faces, to start picking peeling these back. But it is ultimately a story about a God of love who woos psyche and her sister who struggles with this idea uh, of of the gods coming at all. And I'll give away a little bit of the of of the conclusion, because there's a line from where the title comes from, uh, uh, we will not see the gods face to face till we have faces. So the idea is that throughout the story, Orwell is not being entirely truthful with herself, both what she knows to be true and even how she's feeling, and so the book is uh, an invitation uh, for serious honesty with ourselves. So that when we when we come when we place ourselves before God, uh, we come as we are, not who we'd like to be, wearing the masks that we so often put on 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 top of ourselves. So hence
2: the title of the book, and you know a lot of the um a lot of the saints connected knowledge of God. Uh, knowledge of the divine, with self-knowledge, with, with mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and that we can't really, uh, you know, God will, God will be more, not, he's, he's still a mystery, but he will, he will be more, more um, understandable by us when we're honest with ourselves. Uh, and I want to talk about a second common obstacle for people believing, which is um, called the problem of evil, the, the idea that why is there suffering and, and evil in the world if God is all-powerful and all-good. Mm-hmm. Does Lewis address that?
3: His major work on that is The Problem of Pain, and in that work he deals with uh, some fairly common theodicies, explanations for uh, why there is this uh, problem of pain. If if God is all good, why does evil happen? And they're, they're uh, beautifully articulated versions that you would pick up in a philosophy textbook in terms of uh, firstly our, our position of knowledge, what we can know about the suffering we're going through, and how it can actually be turned to good. Mm-hmm. Uh, I th- I, we we get this intu- intuitively when we when we think about it when we're not in the middle of pain when we can look back on our lives and realize that some of yeah. our most painful moments have been the moments not only where we've grown but some really wonderful things have come out of it that we actually even now wouldn't want to be without no matter how painful that experience was. Mm-hmm. So Lewis deals with that idea and um, and the, the soul forming process that 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 this enacts within us. But interestingly with Lewis, there's also a companion book to that called A Grief Observed, because at the end of his life, uh, he was he, he married very late and his wife died of cancer. And so A Grief Observed is basically him chron- chronicling his grief in those early weeks following his wife's death. And there we see a different approach to the problem of pain, uh, a much more visceral uh, and less philosophical. Yeah, this is his
2: first-person experience of great loss, mm-hmm. and uh, and sometimes that's uh, that can help people, you know, who are actually going through that, um, uh, like you say, viscerally, emotionally. Well, you know, we, we don't have much time, so um, let's say people start reading uh, C.S. Lewis and they want to get more from what they've been reading. Tell uh, what's the easiest way for them to you know, look into pints with Jack and and connect what they're reading to what you guys have already talked about. And then hopefully they'll start catching up on some more more, uh, upcoming episodes.
3: Well, we're available on all of the social medias at Pints with Jack. And we have a website, pintswithjack.com. There you can find also all of our past episodes. And what I'm trying to do is for each of of the books in Lewis's corpus, I'm trying to collect all of the other podcasts, all other resources and lecture notes that I found elsewhere in one place. So if you're diving into a particular book, you'll get as much support as you possibly can. And on our own podcast, we've now done six seasons, so we've covered uh, a good number of his books, Mere Christianity, uh, The Great Divorce, The Screwtape Letters, Till We Have Faces, uh, and we just finished uh, uh, The Four Loves, which is a meditation on uh, the different kinds of love that exist in the world.
2: Thank you so much for having uh, taking this time to speak with me about this. And I and I would like to encourage people to go to Pints with Jack and also to, um, if they appreciate what's there, um, to also contribute in some way to the work you're doing.
3: Thank you very much. it will be great to have, great to talk to you. Uh, and, uh, yeah, if anyone is interested in knowing more, shoot me a message at contact at pintswithjack.com. Great. God bless. Bye.
0: All right. So thank you, Father Soroki and, uh, Steve. Um, this is a great program. Uh um, Everyone out there, please be sure to stay tuned after this show for the Life is Worth Living with Archbishop Fulton Sheen show. Thank you. Come on, let's go. I'm here to let you know we're gonna journey through the faith with you. Come on, let's Before your coffee gets cold It's time for the JP2 Morning Crew